Hello, welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Gerard J. Fulda, MD, FACS, FCCM, regarding the guideline published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Management of the Potential Organ Donor in the ICU. Society of Critical Care Medicine, American College of Chess Physicians, and Association of Organ Procurement Organizations consensus statement. Dr. Fulda serves as Chairman of the Department of Surgery, Director of Surgical Critical Care, and Program Director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship, all at Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. He is also an Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Finally, of note, he is past Chancellor of the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Folda. Michael, it's a pleasure to be here today to talk to you about this really exciting publication that's just come out in critical care medicine. From my perspective, this has been a paper that's really taken a long time to develop and evolve. And in part, it's because we've relied on collaboration with uh, several of our affiliated organizations, the College of Chess Physicians and the uh, Organ Procurement Association. And it really started several years ago uh, when I was still on the, uh, the college of critical care medicine when we realized that uh, care of the organ donor patient was fragmented across the United States with a lot of organ procurement organizations applying their own standards to the management of these patients. We realized there was an opportunity to try to develop a uh, more standardized approach to the patient. It's also a very difficult area to address because one of the things about organ donation is a lot of these patients originally come to the hospital with critical injuries or illness, and our first and primary approach is always to try to save the patient and correct whatever caused their initial injury or illness. And it's a, it's a progression from a very aggressive approach to save these patients to a recognition that not every patient can be saved. And when we identify those patients that can't be saved, then historically that's where the care of that the potential organ donor has really a lot of variety and the outcomes of organ donation are dependent upon an organ donor who has viable organs. As you're probably aware, there are about 120,000 people on our organ donor list in the United States, and we're only able to transplant just a little over 30,000 organs per year. So there's a huge demand. And as intensivists, it's our obligation to really look out for our current patients, but to look out for those patients who we serve in other ways. And some of those are the folks on on the organ donor list that are dying at a rate of about 18 patients uh, per day. And, and we have an obligation to them as well. So that was the uh, the impetus of why we set out to put this together. And we found that our initial approach to develop a evidence-based guideline became rather problematic when the literature on the management of the potential organ donor is really relegated to a lot of retrospective studies and very few, if any, high-quality prospective studies. So we realized that a true evidence-based approach to this was not going to be possible. But we did go through about 300 references that are included in the paper, and we did a systematic review of those references. But because of the quality of the, of the data and quality of what's out there, we really uh, weren't able to grade the evidence like we like to do for some of our 
more strict guidelines. So we ended up with a consensus statement. We ended up with a lot of organizations participating in one way, shape, or form. And I think it's really going to give the uh, practicing intensivists a lot of information to help manage these patients, and particularly in ICUs where the number of organ donors per year is not great, so that when a patient is in the ICU and they have a uh, potential organ donor, there's now a document that someone can go to and to review the myths that are out there about organ donation, and at least as of its publication, an up-to-date way of managing these patients. Great. Yeah, I think certainly reading it, I found it quite helpful and uh, certainly shed knowledge on uh, areas that I was was not aware of. I was wondering, as as I kind of, if I take a step back as a practicing intensivist, I see differences even with our own, within our own uh, group, within our own institution. You know, the document refers to the evaluation, declaration of death, management uh, around the time of death, and then management of the potential organ donor after death. And I, I wonder if the group thought a little bit about the roles that intensivists should play in those different areas. Uh, it seems in some institutions, in some areas, that the organ procurement agency really kind of takes over at a certain point and, and really does m- the majority of the management, uh, where in others, uh, ICU physicians are more involved. And I wonder if that was discussed at all moving into this Yeah, we did discuss that, Michael, because one of the uh, problems we run into is that that transition from the time of uh, full-bore critical care with attempts to resuscitate and and correct uh, whatever's wrong with the patient to to the recognition that the patient has not survived and has been declared brain dead. At that point in time, a lot of the intensivists uh, disengage themselves and do not feel that they have any further obligation to a patient who is uh, no longer legally alive. And so they abandoned uh, that and leave it to the organ procurement organizations. And because there's so much variability both within institutions and within various organizations, some of these potential organ donors go from being able to go on to a donation to being unacceptably uh, critically ill. And if you think about the obligation that you had to the patient, particularly one who, who maybe their donor designated, maybe they already have made a decision uh, while they were alive that they want to be an organ donor, and despite your best efforts, they've gone on to brain death, I believe you have still an obligation to that patient to fulfill really what their wishes are, and their wishes are to be an organ donor if at all possible, and how you manage the organs and the potential organ donor after declaration of death, I think, is an obligation that we still have to meet the needs that the patient uh, expressed when they became donor-designated. So I think this document helps us and gives us some guidance on how to do that, and I think that the folks will find it very helpful. As you think about the process, what were the most challenging aspects of creating some of these guidelines? Sure. Some of the some of the challenges were it was a large body of literature, even though it was not necessarily high quality prospective studies. As I mentioned earlier, there were over 300 references that we went through and looked at fairly carefully. And so we had to break up into uh, smaller groups, and uh, they handled different topics within the paper. 
and then each group would be responsible for coming to a consensus, and then that consensus was presented to the larger group. And like in any organization where you have a large number of people trying to agree on words and sentences and the meanings of words and sentences, you get quite an entertaining set of interactions. And so that was really the biggest challenge, and the group was very professional and very dedicated to getting it done. So even though it was challenging, it was also very rewarding. Sounds like a very nice process. If we can go through the document a bit, I found the checklist for determination of brain death very helpful. Um, I think it mirrors many of what we've seen, but it's it's nice and concise and uh, well organized. And so I, I would certainly have the listener turn your attention to table one there in the manuscript. I try to put up several of these tables and checklists into the document. As I said, there may be some large institutions that have already uh, thought this through uh, on a regular basis and have documents available, but for other institutions where the number of potential donors is relatively small, the tables are very helpful. The checklist for determination of brain death, there's a uh, table on uh, being able to predict patients who, if you are using a uh, non-heartbeating approach to a donation, the, the chance that a patient, if you withdraw life support, will go on to be a non-heartbeating donor. That's included in here, as well as a lot of tables and charts on how to deal with the pediatric organ donor, while many of these patients will be in a pediatric intensive care units. So those that are not, it's good to have that type of information for reference. Mm-hmm. You mentioned regarding the prediction of uh, being a a donor following uh, circulatory arrest. And is that the general consensus that if the patient is not able to be declared dead within 60 minutes, that patient is not considered an organ donor? Well, generally speaking, the process, when it is extended out that far, are the patients going to continue on for, for many more hours before the heart stops beating? or they've been hypotensive for a good portion of that hour, and at that point, the organs are less desirable in terms of transplantation. So it, it's somewhat of an arbitrary time frame, and there are going to be circumstances where that might be altered in a particular case, but 60 minutes is kind of the timeline that we utilize for declaration of death after cessation of circulation. And it was interesting. It was a nice review of the various outcomes of different organs and the success rate in donation following a circulatory determination of death. I did think it was interesting that uh, you did include the potential of heart donation, and I wonder if that was a controversial aspect of your discussion. Well, that's something that really uh, there was uh, insufficient amounts of literature and information for us to really make any uh, specific recommendations. And there were a couple other areas in the document where the amount of literature out there is relatively small. And so uh, we did not attempt to try to make any particular uh, recommendation on, on some of these things. I do think another section that will be pretty helpful for the intensivists. There's a uh, several sections in the paper that talk about some general contraindications to organ donation. And there's a lot of myths out there, myths like if a patient has cancer, they can't be an organ donor. And while some of the cancers like choriocarcinoma, malignant melanoma, renal cell cancer really have a high rate of showing up in the recipient. There are other cancers that have a very low probability of showing up in a recipient, some of the localized prostate cancers or CNS tumors that are low-grade tumors. So the message from the document is that you shouldn't have any absolute contraindications in your mind in terms of a patient with a malignancy in terms of being an organ 
landowner until you've spoken to the OPO because uh, what we think sometimes is true is not so true. Same is true for patients who are septic. As long as we're able to clear the sepsis from the system and get rid of the bacteremia, if it's present, those patients can also be considered for organ donations. Other folks, patients with hepatitis C and hepatitis B can also be considered at times, but again, you need to talk to the uh, OPO. But we used to think of patients like that as being previously unlikely candidates for donation. So there's a nice section in there on a lot of these types of contraindications, and I think most folks will learn a little bit by going through that. In many ways, the guiding principle seems to be that most patients who either go on or are at high risk for neurologic death or who are potentially candidates for withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies are potential candidates for organ donation. Um, and as you mentioned, malignancy and infection. Uh, there's a very nice section on donors who are very high risk for HIV infection and how to handle that patient population as well. So the message I, I took away was that there's really very few exceptions and that the majority of cases we really should be notifying our organ procurement agencies as early as possible. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in, in my ICU, and I'm sure in your ICU as well, you have maybe heard folks make comments about, oh, you know, let's not work so hard. They're not, they're not a candidate for organ donation. And I think that kind of thinking is going to cause us to miss opportunities for donation that are out there because some of the assumptions we've made in the past, we now have some information and data to suggest that in certain subgroups or certain classifications, we can do the transplant. I mean, obviously, hepatitis C donor and hepatitis C recipient may be a, an organ pairing that makes sense for that particular patient. And so let's not give up until we've had that conversation. Yeah. One scenario that comes up, and I wonder, it's not really a scenario, but a group of patients, I wonder, maybe I overlooked it, but did the concept of age get discussed at all? Or you know, some folks feel that, well, over a certain age, they're not going to be candidates for organ donation. Yeah, and you know, you have to realize that when we talk about organ donation, we're also talking about tissue donation. And even some of our older folks, while they may not be candidates, for instance, for being a heart donor, where over the age of 50, we tend to really feel that a heart donation gets to be a little bit more complicated. Tissue donation can go on at almost any age. So we don't want to rule patients out just because uh, they're elderly. Yeah. In fact, did I, did I read that the the suggestion was that perhaps we should be slightly increasing the age even for potential heart donors. We should, and I think that as new literature, new information comes out, we'd like to see that age go up when it's safe. I think in the paper uh, we talked about accepting donors to the age of 55, but potentially beyond that. And then really that then depends on their ventricular function, their coronary artery uh, angiogram, and, and other evaluation factors. But in the right setting, the right heart going to the right recipient, there may be cases where donors over the age of 55 can successfully be uh, transplanted into uh, to other patients. So we don't want to uh, have the intensivist thinking a priori that uh, particular uh, cases are going to be rejected by the OPO. Have the conversation, discuss the management of the patient, and then as time progresses, we'll be able to make that assessment. But don't do it in your brain without talking to anybody else about it. Yeah. Are there particular points that you think should be made? It's a very interesting section and well-informed about, or at least as best informed as literature allows in terms of the critical care management 
prior to death and then and following declaration of death. And in many ways, it seems as though it's the basics of ongoing critical care. I didn't know if there were any specific points that you think should be made in regards to those. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, and the take-home message is good donor management is good critical care management. And really, the principles don't change dramatically. A couple of things that are more relevant for the uh, preparation of a potential organ donor is, particularly folks who have been head injured, they tend to make a transition from the acute management of the neurological injury to the potential organ donor in a hypovolemic state. And so gradually allowing those patients to become euvolemic is one of the factors that I think is important and we can do. We also want to pay attention to sodium levels, again, in the neurologically injured patient for a variety of reasons, whether it's due to DI or due to salt loading. They often have sodiums in excess of 155. So that may not be what we want to accomplish. Liver donors are optimized when we're able to get the sodium under 155. And the other thing in terms of management, at least for the lung, certainly the current guidelines for the management of lung protective strategies using uh, low stretch protocols and so forth, that's good critical care management. It's also good management of the donor. There's a table in the guideline as well outlining the criteria for an ideal lung donor and PaO2 greater than 300 on an FiO2 100 is something that we can accomplish in a lot of our patients. And I think we often, again, reject patients as being potential organ donors because their physiology isn't normal. There's a lot of work being done right now on ex vivo lung perfusion, and there are a lot of lungs who have been transplanted from folks that we might not think of as ideal candidates, but once they get the lungs out, they perfuse them, they're able to observe them, they become suitable for donation, and, and so, again, don't discount uh, organs just because at one point in time they don't appear to be uh, functioning normally. Same for the heart. There are a lot of reasons why folks will have depressed ventricular function early on in a critical illness. And if we allow the heart some time to recover, follow them with some serial echocardiograms, a lot of hearts that uh, on day one we may have thought of as being non-transplantable, if we're able to follow them for a couple days, they're able to be transplanted. So those are some of the organ management things that might be a little bit different than caring for the normal patient, if you will, in the ICU. But for the most part, it's just routine good critical care management. Yeah, it's interesting about the, the sodium effects. I was I certainly was unaware that sodium physiology actually affected transplant outcomes. That was that was certainly interesting to learn. One area that I guess at times seems controversial, but I guess it seems even less so, is the idea of the, the situation where a, you know a, a patient has given authorization, usually through their driver's license or their DOV, and but the family has concerns about organ donation, and I guess it looks as though. From the literature and from legal review, that that most states uh, recognize authorization as a valid form of consent for organ donation. Uh, that's correct. As part of the Uniform Gift Act, it's recognized that the authorization on the driver's license, for instance, is an acceptable form of first-person authorization. There's certainly a lot of issues related to situations where the patient has made their wishes known that they would like to be a organ donor and the family has differing views 
And you know, there is obviously a big difference between legal authorization, which you mentioned, and being able to deal with the emotions of the family and trying to get both the family and the patient's wishes to be properly aligned. It's a very delicate situation, particularly when it happens at a time when someone's just died, which is a time of severe emotional turmoil. I know the uh, organ procurement organizations have spent a lot of time training their folks on how to approach families when the situation comes up. And it's also important, I think, for the intensivist as part of our conversation with the family to uh, let them know that this is, in fact, one of the wishes of the patient and to uh, help with the communication process because in times like this, I think the communication breaks down between parties and once communication breaks down and people get rather rigid in their ideas, uh, the situation becomes very, very negative. So I would encourage from the intensivist perspective to help the communication and keep the lines of communication open. And speaking of communication, there's a nice section regarding the so-called decoupling of information regarding brain death, as well as uh, consideration of withdrawing of licensing therapies from speaking about organ donation. And it was actually, uh, it was interesting because it didn't seem as concrete as I was at least led to believe in the past that I believe the kind of came away with in the majority of cases that that should be the case, although some further evaluation really needs to be performed to really determine the best way of approaching those that, that communication. No, that's absolutely correct. And I think that the classical teaching a few years ago was that not only should the uh, questing be totally uncoupled from the caregivers at the bedside, but they really were separate processes and, and the two were never to cross over. And while that is very important, certainly from the ethical perspective of making sure that the physicians caring for the patient have only one interest, which is to help the patient survive if at all possible and to allow the organ procurement agency to deal with those issues that come up after declaration of death. In, in reality, what we find is that when folks work as teams and when the family perceives teams working well together, there's more trust and there is perhaps a greater likelihood of a successful authorization. And so the research now is really trying to identify those areas where, where we can perhaps change this model a little bit. And clearly, the folks doing the conversations with the family need to have sufficient experience and, and training and the time really to devote to, to the family, but that uh, there should be uh, a lot of coordination of the goals of both the uh, healthcare team, the providers, the OPO, and these are priorities that, that should be set perhaps in a team huddle or a group meeting prior to uh, approaching the family. And what what would you say or what would the group say to someone who, I know sometimes physicians um, get pretty antsy when the family brings up organ donation before they're ready to speak about it. It's detailed a little bit. I wondered if you had some reflections. I think, you know, the 
that particular conversation is going to rely a little bit on the comfort and experience of the of the IC provider that is having that uh, conversation with the family. If it's an area that they're very comfortable with, they probably have had the skills to deal with it. If they're not, I think the important thing to relate to the family is is that number one, uh, we will absolutely honor the wishes of the patient and respect the wishes of the family, and that we will have a conversation with those folks who are much more knowledgeable about this process than I am. If you happen to be a physician who's not comfortable, that's probably the way to introduce the organ procurement individuals to the family so that really a more detailed conversation can take place. So again, I, I want to commend your group in uh, putting this document together as we discussed. It is, it is a long document. It has a lot of uh, information, and I think it's certainly something that also ICU practitioners should kind of keep in their back pocket when they have questions that arise and certainly at least review it once in general. Are there other particular takeaways that you think uh, that our listeners should should receive? Sure, just a couple of other takeaways is uh, the document will be uh, available online on SCCM's uh, webpage where the college has all of its other guidelines. So if it falls out of your back pocket, there's a place where you can at least go to it. And then the organization is hopefully going to be creating a toolkit that will go along with this that would be more of a, uh, a nuts and bolts kind of a uh, document that would address all the recommendations in the guideline, but do it in a manner that is more conducive to producing a protocol for your particular ICU. So that hopefully will be coming out sometime soon. So those are two takeaways in addition to the, to the content within the publication. Oh, great. That's wonderful to hear. And I'm sure that, that sounds like a very useful toolkit. So thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been a very much a pleasure for me to speak with you this afternoon. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash project dispatch. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.
To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.